so faithfully allowing us to do in gathering together like this, to worship him, to pray together, to feed on his word together. John, we're very thankful that he's letting us do this with you this morning in person and what he let us do last night of hearing from you and praying for your ministry. And we will be praying for the news in the next week or two uh, and eager to hear about that. I trust you're turning already in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. We'll finish what we started last week in looking at verses 6 to 10. And what we started to see last week had to do with Paul's descriptions of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you remember that? Remember that that was our focus. Uh, He spoke of, just to give us a recap, you remember he spoke in verse 6 of the gospel as the grace of Christ. He warned that the nature of this gospel is one of a propositional truth claim, which means it's a message that can be distorted. And in fact, his opponents were doing just that. Uh, He called on the churches in Galatia that he's writing to, to hold fast to the true gospel message that they had received. And he told them that every other message that they would ever receive concerning God and his ways and his plans needed to be judged on the basis of that original message that had been preached to them. That's what we looked at last week. Uh, This morning, we're going to spend our time reflecting on verses 9 and 10. And especially, I want us to think together this morning and for you to be able to think this week about what is implied in these verses. What is the fallout of the truth that we see in our passage this morning? What's the fallout in the life of a believer when it comes to our allegiance to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. We know here that the allegiance that we have and that we confess to the gospel really is fundamental in our individual lives, isn't it, as born-again believers. It shapes who we are, how we think, how we see. But given that we live uh, our current lives in this present evil age that Paul has already introduced that allegiance is going to carry a cost with it. And so the question for us to consider this morning as we look at verses 9 and 10 is this, what is the cost of that allegiance that Paul is going to raise for us in these two verses? So let's read this morning uh, all of this particular section, verses 6 to 10. If you are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. 
Please be seated. I want us to see what Paul is relating to us here in terms of cost. I want us to see this in uh, three uh, places or three emphases in particular having to do with the cost. First, we begin in verse 9. And here's one thing that we see very clearly from Paul, and that is that the cost that we're talking about, the cost of allegiance to the gospel of Christ, for a Christian lives in times like these in the present evil age, the cost is not hypothetical. This is the first thing that we do. To, to, to understand what he's, what he's doing in verse 9, we need to see how it is actually a change from verse 8. It's easy for verse 8 and verse 9 to sound exactly the same and to seem like he's just repeating himself for emphasis. But let's notice some important differences. He said in verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. Now, going from that to what we see here in verse 9, there's one fundamental change, and it has to do with the verb form that Paul uses. You can even see it in, in, in English. Uh, he uses the same verb. It's a one word that means to preach the gospel, to preach a gospel. Uh, but he changes the form of the verb. In verse 8, he used a subjunctive form because he was talking about something hyperbolic and hypothetical, something that's not really happening. He's essentially saying to them in verse 8, even if I were to come to you with a different gospel, or even if an angel descended from the clouds bringing to you a different gospel, of course, none of that's happening, but even if it were happening, you should count that messenger to be accursed. That messenger should be anathema to you. But in verse 9, he stops talking in the subjunctive, and he switches the mood. He's not describing hypotheticals anymore, in other words. Now he's saying to them, but look, seriously, Galatians, if anyone brings to you a so-called gospel message that is contrary to what you already received, that person is to be anathema to you. He is now talking to them about the real world, about a situation that likely could or, in fact, is happening now in their case. And he is giving them God's command for them in that situation. Here is what God commands of you to do when this set of circumstances takes place. That person must be anathema to you. We'll talk more here in a moment about what that anathema means and entails. But this really can, even for us in our context today, this can wake us up a little bit to hear Paul ordering what he's ordering. Do you see that he's essentially telling us to pay attention to the voices that we allow into our lives. We are not as immune to the influence of others as we can tend to think that we are. Have you found that out about yourself, about those that you love? Have there been times where you have marveled at what others have uh, begun to walk down because of voices that they thought were innocuous, that they thought they were immune to? We are not immune to the influence of others. And we could apply that in a great number of contexts today, couldn't we? But in this current context, 
One application is this, that the people that we allow into our inner circle, if you will, the people that we allow to be the influencers in our lives, they need to be people who are going to direct us to the grace of Christ continually. This same Paul, when he wrote his first letter to the Corinthians, comes to a situation at one point where he talks about boastful living. Uh, he, He quotes a common saying of the day, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, which, if you think about it, is very much a worldview forming statement that people seem to be saying to each other. Uh, in those times. And then he says this. He says, right after that, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. I hear him say that and I think to myself, boy, that's the kind of, that's the voice I need in my inner circle of influence. If the voice that I have let become intimately close to me, part of my people, uh, is pushing for a let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die mentality, I am slowly allowing corruption to creep into my thinking. Disagree with that and Paul will say, you are deceived. And he'll say, he'll call you to wake up from your drunken stupor. You don't want Paul to have to say that to you. You don't want to be in that place. There's a warning here in what we see in verse 8 and especially here now, verse 9. Now, what Paul has in mind most especially are the voices of authority in uh, in the lives of these believers. He's really talking first and foremost about teachers. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel, and this is a plural you, he's speaking to the church, in a a specific context. That person, if that gospel is contrary to what you have received, he must be anathema to you. And so we categorically reject, as Christians, false teaching and the teacher who teaches it. It takes many forms in our day, doesn't it? We reject today advocates of a cheap gospel who ignore the the Bible's call to repentance. We reject advocates of a liberal gospel who deny the judgment of God and who point us to a Christ who is not divine and did not rise from the dead. We reject the message and the messenger. We reject advocates of a man-centered gospel who tell people how wonderful they are and hide any scriptural words about human depravity and tell you that what God wants most for you is for you to be healthy and happy in this life. We reject the message and we reject the messenger. We reject them and we try to get those that we love to reject them as well, don't we? As an act of love. He has directly in his mind false teachers in these sorts of contexts. But I do not think that that is all he has in mind not by a long shot, and there's a reason for that. He either has implicitly here something else in mind as well, or it's at least uh, another application that we can draw from this than simply thinking about our responses to professional teachers or preachers. What's this more that I'm 
talking about. Well, I, I don't even think it's an inference that we necessarily have to draw. I think it is a part of his intention. And I see that in the way he has shifted from verse 8 to verse 9. Look, look at who he's speaking in reference to. Verse 8, he says, even if I, Paul, or an angel from heaven should bring this message, what's the replacement there in verse 9? Do you see the single word? He says, if anyone brings to you a gospel, if anyone is preaching to you a contrary gospel. There are many Old Testament, uh, or I should say, there are many commentators uh, looking at Paul here who see Old Testament connections with what Paul is doing, and I, th I think that they are right. Uh, it, it's either explicitly in his mind, the, the connection we're about to make, or it's at the very least an easy application that we can, that we can see. Uh, and it would make sense if Paul is alluding back to some Old Testament realities. Uh, because remember his opponents, he is dealing with a group of Judaizers who uh, boast in their knowledge of and love of the Old Testament scriptures. This is a group that would be saying to these churches, we take the Old Testament scriptures more seriously than Paul does. There was likely that sort of an attitude. And so Paul words things sometimes in ways that for Jews who had a knowledge of the Old Testament, it would bring their minds back to certain Old Testament situations. I think he did that in verse 6 as well. We didn't talk about it then, but I think when he says to them, I am astonished that you are so quickly turning away, in verse 6, he uses two words there that are the same phrasing, uh, essentially the same phrasing that we see in places in the Old Testament, especially Exodus 32, 8. You don't have to turn there. This is where Moses was up on the mountain receiving the law from God and the people are down making the, uh, the golden calf. You remember that? And God says to Moses there, um, speaking of the Israelites, he tells Moses that they have turned aside quickly from the way that I commanded them, using some of the same phrasing. And you'd better believe that that was a passage that any Jew in their midst was very familiar with. So when Paul uses that language... It triggers memories, Old Testament memories. He's possibly doing that here in verse 9 as well when he's talking about this broad scope. And I want to show this to you because I think it's very helpful to us. Would you turn with me back to Deuteronomy chapter 13? Starting in verse 1, we're going to read a little bit of this and we're going to break it into two pieces. I want us first to see verses 1 to 5 in Deuteronomy 13. This is God giving them instruction. Let's just read it to begin, verses 1 to 5. And try to visualize the situation he's describing here. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder... And the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams 
shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Were you able to visualize that? It's an incredible situation to, to, to consider happening. He's telling them of the, the sure coming of times where a prophet will arise among them and get this, he will work legitimate miracles in their midst. He will work a miraculous work. It will happen. He will foretell the future. It will come to pass. He will pass these tests. And he says, there will be times where that prophet will come to you, work a miracle among you, and then give you a message that disagrees with the revealed truth of God, leading you to follow after other gods. And he says, when that happens, stone him to death. Take him out and stone him to death. I mean, it's an incredible situation because of the, um, the power visible in that messenger, isn't it? Coming into verse 6, though, it actually ratchets up. How could it possibly get more intense than that? Let me read verses 6 to 11. <clears throat> if your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods of the people who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear, and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. You hear the turn he takes there? How could it possibly ratchet up from a miracle worker in your midst? Here's how it could ratchet up. Even if it's the one closest to you. If it is your wife, if it is your friend who is as your own soul, who seeks to entice you in this Old Testament context, he says, here is what you are to do. Now, I read that in those two, uh, two pieces to try to show what, for us to see what God has done in those commands. Do you see what he's done, and do you see how Paul seems to match it here in our passage in Galatians chapter 1? God said there in Deuteronomy 13, Do not let the power of the messenger distract you. Judge his message by the revealed word of God, and be ready to reject even the most impressive messenger if he tries to lead you astray from the unchanging, settled word of God. And then he says, now let me tell you something even harder than that. If the enticement comes from the person you love the most, you must be ready to love me more. I don't think it's a stretch at all for us to see that, to know Paul's context and situation, 
And to be able to meditate on that, how it applies to us here in Galatians 1.9, when Paul moves from, if an angel from heaven should come and bring you a contrary message, to this verse 9, if anyone is preaching to you a contrary message. I don't think he's just talking about professional teachers and preachers. I think he's saying, if anyone in your life seeks to lead you astray, there is a way you are to view them. Our enemy is willing to pit our dearest loves in this life against our love for Christ. This is a, this is a real cost to our allegiance to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as some in this room have already learned, It is not a hypothetical cost, is it? So what does the cost entail in our passage? Well, let's go to the second way we're going to hear from him about this cost. Still in verse 9, we see from him information about the cost of a curse. Let's look at what this is. The cost of a curse. What he's telling us to do, his readers and us today, in these situations comes in one phrase. Let him be accursed. Literally, let him be anathema. This is an Old Testament word and concept brought into their context. Anathema in contexts like these means delivered up to divine wrath or devoted to destruction. It's often used in the Old Testament in reference to situations with the Israelites where things were, quote, put under the ban. If you heard that, that, that line of, of, uh, of description, God would call them to put things under a ban. They were set apart by him for destruction. Uh, and this is what is inherent in this idea of anathema. So Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament describes anathema in those terms. And it says, what comes under the ban is taken out of ordinary human circulation and given up to destruction. And it's not just objects that are put under the ban. People can be put under the ban, too. It happens in Leviticus 27, 29, for example. And that person is separated out for destruction and put to death. Now, here's the question uh, to me in this command. Because notice, Paul doesn't simply say, this person is anathema in the sight of God. We know that to be true. Someone bringing a false message of salvation and trying to lead people astray from the only way of rescue, that person is cursed by God. But he doesn't just describe it. There's a command here. I mean, an imperative form. It says, let him be accursed. So what is the real sense behind this as a command? If it's a command, there's something we're supposed to do in response. What's the sense here? And it seems that there has to be at least three things that we are to do step by step uh, in response to this command. One, maybe the beginning thing is we must be willing to recognize such a state. To put it simply, we, we have to be willing to call a spade a spade, according to this command. When you see this happen, when you hear someone bringing a false 
message of salvation, we must be able to recognize that, so, that, that this person is accursed. But it can't stop with a recognition in my mind. I must recognize this, and then I must be willing to declare such a thing to be the case. I must be willing to step out and say, I do not agree with what you're saying, and more importantly, I'm here to tell you that the Bible does not agree with this statement, with this claim, with this particular approach to life and relationship with God that you're holding out. The Bible rejects this. I must be willing to declare such a thing. And furthermore, I must be ready, in whatever way it looks in that context, to withdraw from such a state. Someone under the ban is set apart. I must withdraw from this. I think we see this uh, sort of situation in the book of 2 John, in verse 9. It reads there, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. It's, it begins there by speaking about this person like this. It said, everyone who goes on ahead. The New American Standard translates that, everyone who goes too far. Uh, and it makes clear why that's the case. Where have they gone? It says they go on ahead and they do not abide in the teaching of Christ. They do not stop there and make their home there. They do not find their rest in the teaching of Christ. They decide to keep going on the path. And I hope that you know full well this morning that any single step beyond the step of the message of grace of Jesus Christ is a step too far. You have gone too far if you have gone on ahead from that message. That's what the false teachers in Galatia are leading them to do. Remember verse 6, they are being led to desert God and to turn to another gospel. Now there's a distinction I think we need to make here in terms of applying this. I would draw a distinction between how we should think through our obedience to this command when it comes to a local church setting and something of a more familial or personal setting. We've already seen from Paul's word, uh, anyone, that this can come in both of those sorts of situations. It doesn't just come in the formal church-gathered context. But let's think about that one first. When we're talking about a local church setting, I think it is perhaps a bit cleaner in terms of thinking through how we are to respond, how we are to obey this command. Now, people in the church who bring teaching that is contrary to the message of the sufficiency of Christ are to be put out of the church. It's definitely his most immediate intent here. Remember, as we've said, the word you is in the plural here. He's talking to them corporately. If anyone is preaching to you all this contrary gospel, let him be anathema to you. To, to contradict the faith once for all delivered to the saints is a sin, isn't it? This is a, a blasphemy to bring a false message. And Matthew chapter 18 tells us how to handle present sin in the body. It's to be confronted 
gently but persistently. It's to be purged from the midst of the body, lest the leaven leaven the entire loaf. Now, in a church context, like we're thinking about, who is responsible to carry that out? Who's Paul talking to when he says, let him be anathema? In one sense, the answer is all of you, all of us, the church, corporate. It's the responsibility of all the members to guard their brothers and sisters in this way. So Paul raises a specific sin situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And he says there, he says, although I have already judged this man as if I were present, he says to them that, when, that you, he says, plural again, when you are assembled, you are to put this man out of the church. You are to deliver him over to Satan. It's a corporate responsibility in this way. In another sense, though, and not a, one that disagrees with that, but I think going alongside of it, uh, this is particularly a role that elders exist to exercise in a church body. Titus 1.9 marks as an elder qualification that such a man, it says there, holds fast to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So this is a call from the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1.9 to the body as a whole and to their leadership in particular to step up and guard this flock. And as I've said, when you go through the steps of Matthew 18, when you see the whole council of the New Testament concerning the church gathered, there's something clean about this. He's not left us, thank God, to have to be creative and to wonder how to uh, walk through, although every situation can be different and requires wisdom. We've seen, though, that, that this sort of a confrontation with false gospels does not just affect us in a formally gathered context. We're often forced to defend the true gospel at a personal level, too, aren't we? And when we get into that realm, it's a bit of a different beast. It can take a number of forms, some of them more personal than others. When a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door this afternoon, you don't know that person. It's not so personal. It's not Deuteronomy 13, 6 to 11 personal, usually. They've got a friendly smile and you have a short window there. What should I do in obeying this command? And sometimes the circumstances will dictate the length of the conversation. Uh, there's been many different thoughts about how to approach that. I'll tell you personally, uh, though sometimes that interaction for me is longer than others, I have committed to never letting that sort of situation pass by uh, without declaring to them politely. My friend, you need to hear today that the message that you are bringing is a perversion of God's message of rescue through Christ. And you need to know that you are under his curse as you stand here right now. As long as you do not repent and trust in Christ as he revealed himself in the Bible, you need to hear that. Can I pray for you? That can be a, the entire conversation. That can be a piece of a larger conversation. But I personally have committed to never letting that happen without making clear. You are under a curse as you bring this message and lead people astray. 
There are other times, though, in our lives, sadly, and perhaps more and more today, where this sort of situation will be very, very personal. How often today are our Christian brothers and sisters having to face their own family members who begin to speak of God as not being serious about sin or speak of Jesus' death as allowing sin to abound or perhaps even denying the existence of God altogether. And we rightly weep with those who weep when those situations occur. They require a great deal of wisdom, don't they? And there is a need for loving gentleness as we uh, always try to flavor our words with salt, with gentleness. But there is an inescapable reality that fidelity to the gospel is going to bring division, isn't it? And sadly, at times, even among our own families. Jesus did not hide this hard reality from us. You may remember his words in Matthew chapter 10, verses 35 to 39. He said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Now let me pause there. We know that when Christ comes again, he brings God's judgment with him against sin, and he then ushers in everlasting peace, doesn't he? He is the Prince of Peace. He is speaking here to his disciples, whom he is going to leave and be present with through the Holy Spirit. But he's describing for them life of a Christian in the present evil age, and the already not yet, between his rescue and his second coming. And my friends, that life he's going to describe is not a peaceful one. That's what he's talking about. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I don't know. I think these are some of the harder words for, for us to hear in Scripture. Because they do not shy away from the cost that we must count. If my allegiance is to the true gospel of Jesus Christ... It's going to cost me. And some of that cost will very possibly come in our closest relationships in this life. I think we're coming to understand that we walk toward times in which our willingness to pay such costs is going to be put to the test, if it hasn't already. And I, I wonder... I believe with all my heart that this will only increase and dramatically so. Don't you, as you think about that, that happening in your life potentially, or maybe not so potentially, maybe it's already happened, don't you thank God that he is not asking us to walk that path by ourselves?
He has given us an entire family to walk alongside of us down that path. That's what you have around you this morning. You have your adopted family. As you've received adoption into the family of God, you have an entire family that is the nearest to you, as near as blood relations, nay, nearer. And before we take a step further, I want you to look with me. Well, this is, I think, the last place I'll have you turn. Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 28. As we tremble considering this sort of a cost, what would Jesus point us to for encouragement? We see the answer here beginning in verse 28 of Matthew chapter 10. Look first at just what Peter says. Peter began to say to him, he's talking to Jesus, See, we have left everything and followed you. Now stop there for a moment. There's a real sense in which, after, and the Bible speaks of this, doesn't it? After everything I have done for the Lord, what I should say to him is, Lord, I am a humble servant, an unworthy servant. I'm only doing what has been commanded, what is required of me. I'm not deserving of a reward because of the things that I have done. I'm your servant. That's true. And that is not at all what Jesus is directing our attention to here. Notice how Jesus answers Peter. Peter said to him, See, we have left, <coughs> See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. New American Standard translates that the present age. I think we've said some things about that in the last few weeks. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Do you see what Jesus says to respond to Peter's statement? We've left everything. First of all, he makes plain that it is required at points. Doesn't he? He acknowledges the situation where there are people called by Christ who, for his sake and for the sake of the gospel, have to give up their house. People who, for the sake of the gospel, have to leave their brothers and sisters or their children in the way he's describing. He acknowledges it. And what does he say? He says, I tell you the truth, in this present age, there's not one of you who have left those things who will not receive a hundredfold. I hope it's clear this is no prosperity gospel here. Far from it. He is talking to them about what they have been given in the gift of the family of God. You lose your house tomorrow because of... <coughs> Excuse me. You lose your house tomorrow because of the gospel. You look around you. You've got about 35 houses in this room. You lose the support and love and guidance that, of your relationship with your father in this life. 
you've got 50 fathers in this little church. You lose your children, you have, how many kids do we have? You have children in this church to pour into, to love, to, to raise. No one loses in this life for the sake of Christ these things and does not get an exchange more. This is where Jesus points his people to when they have paid a high cost because of their allegiance to the gospel. And it is supposed to be hugely encouraging. Or does Jesus try and fail to encourage? Is he like me so many times, or many of us, who have a situation where we want to encourage and we just say the wrong thing? Jesus doesn't do that. This is what he says to bring encouragement to those who have paid a cost for the gospel. It is encouraging. It is the truth. It's encouraging across the board, except for situations in which the church refuses to be this for each other. Situations in which the church does not yet see itself in those terms. And I'll tell you, it is the sort of thing for me in our context that warms my heart the most and most often as I get the chance to see, maybe better than, than many of you, the immediate and personal and sacrificial way that you care for each other and take care of one another. It is a powerful thing to see. And I pray that as you see it, and I pray that as times come where you find yourself experiencing it, that you will thank God for what he has given us and find comfort there. As we turn to verse 10, and we will not spend the time in verse 10 that we did in verse 9, don't worry. But let's just notice that the command of verse 9, let them be accursed, includes dynamics that amount to a cost to the believer. We've seen that. We must care about distortions of the details of God's message of salvation. We have to be willing to speak out loud about those things. And even to do so when the person before us is someone that we care deeply about. And it's that part that links us into verse 10. Let's read it first. Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The final thing we see here about this cost is that this cost is paid in social capital. Now make no mistake, there are many other ways that this cost is paid, some of them even more compelling at times. But his point here in verse 10 has to do with social capital. His point, I think, is simple. We have to choose whose approval we care about. And Paul makes the question a binary one. It's nice to think back to a time where binary choices were seen as a matter of course. Here's his binary choice. You are either seeking the approval of man or you are seeking the approval of God. And we'll see next week that part of the reason he's saying this is because he's going to return now to uh, the accusation that he crept open the door for earlier on, that his is a man-made and man-pleasing gospel. He's about to get back to responding to that. But this statement doesn't just belong with the next paragraph. It's also a conclusion to what we've just been seeing. To Paul, this is what we see. To choose the life of a servant of Christ 
And it's actually the word doulos, the word for slave here, slave of Christ. To choose that life is to Paul a clear demonstration that one is not living to please other people. Because you must do one or the other. You can live out of a fear of man. You can live to be a people pleaser. Or you can be a servant of Christ. You cannot be both. Spurgeon described this very well. He said, those whom we try to please are our masters. If a man tries to please the populace or to please the refined few, these are his masters and he will be their slave. But if he tries to please his God, then he is a free man indeed. You can tell from that quote that to Spurgeon, this was a matter of the sort of Matthew chapter 6 statements of Jesus. No one can serve two masters. I very much appreciate the way that he puts that and gives two options of pleasing the populace or pleasing the refined few. Both of them are slavery. Do we not live in a society right now that is quite obviously living to please a refined few? And we can look at that and say these are the masters of our society as we see it playing out. But as Christians, by contrast, we do not live. We do not live by those standards. We must not, furthermore, replace that refined few with a refined few of our own. The audience for whom we perform, the master for whom we labor, is the Lord God Almighty. He is the one whose pleasure we concern ourselves with. We crave his approval. And we foster this in ourselves and in our children as well. We seek to live giving honor where honor is due. We teach our children to do the same, to honor their parents in particular, as is commanded. But we think of both spheres with the understanding that the God who sees all and the God who sent his son to die in the place of sinners, his pleasure, his approval is what must matter most to us. And I pray that we're teaching our children the same thing. We want you kids in here. We want you to learn to honor and obey your parents. But the highest desire for all of us is to please our Heavenly Father. But see, what we find in verse 10, and even the reverse of it, is true. If I am to be a servant of Christ who lives in this present evil age, I am going to lose favor in the sight of men. So as we close, I would, I would simply ask you, are, are you readying yourself for those choices? Are you willing for that today? To lose favor in the sight of men because of your allegiance. And I think it's appropriate in light of this for us to close by simply hearing the words of two places of Scripture. One, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10. These were the last verses that Bobby preached to us out of 2 Corinthians. And you'll notice that Paul ties here the fact that we aim to please God above all else to the simple fact that as the master, his is the judgment that we concern ourselves with and that we face. Paul says there, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You see the connection he makes. And the second is 
Luke 12, verses 4 and 5. And I'll simply close by reading this. There is no explanation necessary. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you today for feeding us from your word. And in particular this morning, Lord, we thank you for loving and caring for us by bringing back to our mind the cost that we have counted as we have taken up our cross to follow you. Father, we confess our weakness and our fear. And I pray, Lord, more and more as time goes on that you will strengthen us, that you will use us to build each other up so that we are ready to pay whatever cost you would call us to pay in order to walk faithfully before you, clinging to your gospel of the grace of your Son as our only hope and his righteousness as the only way that we might be pure in your sight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.